the words of others can have a huge impact on us. Hopefully in your life you can think of some people or some words that were spoken to you that were very encouraging, that helped you keep going, that helped you want to overcome that obstacle before you. But then there's discouraging words that can put us back, cause us to step back, maybe even cause us to give up. Think about the impact of a parent's word upon their children. Think of how differently a child will react to the words, you're doing a good job, to you're good for nothing. Think about the difference in your life if, say, you were to ask someone out on a date. And their words may impact the direction of your life. Yes, I'd love to go. No, uh, I have a funeral at that time. No, I can't go, sorry. Or you go to a job interview and you think that the job has gone well or the interview has gone well and then you see your phone light up and it's the interviewer. And their words will impact your life, whether it's you got the job or we decided to go with someone else. Or think about the impact on a defendant in a court case where the prosecution and the defense have stated their cases and now it's in the hands of the judge and it's verdict day. And the words coming from the judge will greatly affect the life of that defendant, whether the words are guilty or non, not guilty. The words of others can have a great impact on our life. And I hope that you can think of some words that someone spoke to you at some key point in your life that helped you to keep going. Or maybe you don't remember the specific words, but you remember the person and you remember that they were an encourager in your life. And I hope something similar happens today. Because we're going to look at some words that had a deep and profound effect on the life of the one who was speaking them but also have the potential to have a deep and profound effect on us. These words were given in answer to a question. And this question was literally a matter of life and death for the person receiving the question. How they answered would determine whether they lived or died. And yet it also can give us life. And so as we look at the answer that's going to be given... I pray that we will see and grow in appreciation for the sacrifice it took to actually say these words. And then we're going to look at where this answer led and what it means for you and me today. So if you have a Bible or on your devices, I invite you to find Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 68. Matthew 26, 57 to 68. If you're looking at the Bibles in front of you, if you're here with us today, it's on page 702. And also, if you could find in your Bibles, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, which we'll be looking at in a few minutes. But we're starting in Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. 
Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? He deserves death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So it's Thursday night of Easter week. And Jesus has, been just, has just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they bring him to Caiaphas' house, the high priest over the nation. But this is not just any house. It's more like a palace. For Caiaphas held the highest office over the entire Jewish nation at that time. They had no king, so the high priest was their highest ruler in a sense. And this high priest, along with the other chief priests, was responsible for administering and running the temple, the central place of worship for Jews all over the world. Caiaphas came from the Sadducee sect or group in Israel's religious leadership. And unlike the Pharisees, who were more like local pastors, the Sadducees were from a royal family or from the wealthiest families in Israel. Israel at that time so they had power and the high priest also had his own military force including temple guards who participated in Jesus arrest so his large house has meeting rooms and even a network of prison cells to hold lawbreakers so they bring Jesus to the official residence of the high priest where there are multiple staff and multiple guards and we're told at the end of verse 60, or 57 that scribes and elders had already gathered at this house. And they belonged to the high Jewish council called the Sanhedrin and they had received notice that this arrest was going to happen and so they're already there at the high priest's house waiting for this meeting. Now, there are several unusual things about this gathering compared to normal gatherings of the Sanhedrin or High Jewish Council. First of all, it's nighttime. If an arrest has happened at night, most often the council would meet the next day. But here they're going to meet at night. And when they did meet to adjudicate or discern whether or not a person was a lawbreaker, they met at the temple courts. There was a special meeting place for them there. And this was more in the public. 
so that the people could see and could watch their leaders debate, discern whether or not this person was a lawbreaker. They would learn from that and they could see what was going on. So there was a measure of accountability there. But this meeting is held at the high priest's house only for those who are invited. And thirdly, the unusual thing was if they decided on a capital conviction, they never acted on that conviction until they had slept on it. So say they had decided this person is guilty, they are worthy of long imprisonment or even the death penalty, they would all go home, they would sleep on it, and they would come back together the next day and decide, is this still your verdict? But here, they want the verdict and it carried out as quickly as possible. And we soon discover why they preferred a secret meeting. Verse 59 says, Now the chief priests and whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Now think about that. This is the religious leadership over Judaism, the people of God, and they're seeking false testimony. You'd think the people of God, the leaders of God's people, would be seeking truth. But this could indicate that the council knew that their case against Jesus for the death penalty was shaky. And they wouldn't find reason enough to have him killed. For in this context, at this time in history, it was the Romans who ultimately ruled over Israel at that time. There was a Roman military occupation going on. Their soldiers were all over the country. And though they allowed the Jews to carry out the death penalty in what the Romans considered minor religious matters, so they would allow the the Jews to stone a lawbreaker like they would do in Acts 7 with Stephen, someone they perceived to be a lawbreaker. When it came to offenses that were a threat to Rome or perceived to be a threat, the Romans reserved the death penalty for themselves because they wanted to ensure that everyone knew that anyone who rebelled against Rome would suffer this incredibly humiliating and painful death called crucifixion. So the council has this problem. They don't like Jesus. They perceive him to threaten their power. He had insulted and offended them, especially by clearing the temple a few days before of the money changers. They want to silence him permanently in a public way, but they don't have the power to do it or sentence him to that kind of death. So they seek witnesses who will publicly swear an oath of telling the truth when they know they're lying. Which is a hard thing to do. Because if you were caught doing that, it also had penalties. And yet the text tells us several false witnesses came forward. But even then, the council couldn't accept their testimony. It was so contradictory. It didn't add up, and the council's responsibility was to investigate the witnesses and see, are they credible? Until two come forward with a charge that the council can work with. Verse 61, they said, this man, Jesus, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now that is actually a misquote of what Jesus actually said in John 2.16 where he says destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say I will destroy this temple. Nor is he talking about the actual temple 
He's talking about his own body that if killed, it would be raised up in three days. But back at the trial, these words about destroying the temple could be perceived as a real threat to the center of Judaism, the house of worship for the entire people. And in verse 62, the high priest picks up the seriousness of this charge. And he stands up and says to Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus could have defended himself. Jesus could have responded by clarifying his words. I didn't say I would destroy the temple. I meant my own body. And if someone destroyed it or killed me in three days, I would be raised up. Yet Jesus doesn't defend himself. He remains silent, according to verse 63. He would let the actions of the council and others reveal their true motives. And his silence fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus' silence brings no satisfaction to the high priest. He wants a verdict. He wants to give the council something they can use to present a death penalty to the Romans that they would act on. So at the end of verse 63, the high priest says, I adjure you, I command you, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now Caiaphas, the high priest, jumps from the destroy this temple charge to the Christ, the Son of God charge. Who was the Christ? Well, the Christ was Messiah, the one promised from the Old Testament, the anointed one who would deliver Israel from her oppressors. And it seems that many of the Jews in Jesus' day did not expect Messiah to be divine. They did not expect it to be a godlike figure, just an ordinary king, in a way, like King David, who would rise up and deliver them from her oppressors. So it's strange that Caiaphas says, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. But perhaps he's heard this. Perhaps Judas told him that when Jesus asked us, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, back in Matthew 16 16. So Caiaphas is trying to get Jesus to acknowledge this deliverer status and then he can present that to the Romans as a reason for death. And this is the critical question. The high priest's question in verse 63, how Jesus answers it will mean either his life or his death. If he says yes, he tells the truth, but he signs his own death warrant. If he says no, doubt remains, but he's lying about his real identity. Jesus shows a decisive determination to go in one direction. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so to the high priest, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And these fateful words directly impact Jesus' life and ultimately our own. 
So what does Jesus reveal about himself in his answer to the high priest? First of all, he reveals that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Though he does not say, I am the Christ, the Son of God. He says to the high priest, you have said so. Ironically, you have made the confession of faith. He acknowledges the truth of the high priest's statement and its accuracy. Yet, if Jesus had stopped after saying, you have said so, doubt remained. All he has done is affirm that the high priest said something about him. If he stopped there, who knows how the trial would have gone. But Jesus goes further, revealing more about himself. But I tell you, from now on, he says, you will see the Son of Man. Now to us, the phrase Son of Man doesn't mean anything. Maybe just another way of talking about humans. But Son of Man was a title that showed up in a very important Old Testament passage called Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. And Daniel was a prophet during the exile, and he has these visions from God. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, we read, this is Daniel talking, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's another name for God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Well, that is no ordinary man. This son of man figure comes before God and receives dominion or authority over all people, over all kingdoms, and it will last forever. That's like the kingdom of God. He is equated to God in some way. He's given a kingdom like God's kingdom, yet he's a son of man. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He claims that they will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power or mighty one in the New International Version. Now the Jews sometimes use the word power as a substitute name for God because they reverenced God's name and they showed so much reverence towards God's name they wouldn't even speak it at times. And so they would come up with these substitutes like power. So Jesus says you'll See the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. So the council knew exactly who he was referring to when he said power. That's God. And this seated at the right hand goes back to another Old Testament passage that was critical called Psalm 110 verse 1. And this is King David speaking. And the verse says this. The Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, King David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And many Jews believe that David's Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1 was the Messiah. And the Lord gives David's Lord the privilege of sitting at his right hand, which was the second most powerful place in the entire universe apart from sitting on the throne of God himself. And God would strike down the enemies of Messiah and make them like a footstool at his feet. 
And in Jesus' statement, he connects the Son of Man image with the Lord in Psalm 110.1 who will sit at God's right hand. And then he says one more thing. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And cloud imagery is always associated with God throughout the Old Testament. So when God came at Mount Sinai to deliver the law to the people, he comes in a thick cloud. And when the Israelites are wandering in the universe, or in the universe, in the wilderness, he leads them by a pillar of cloud during the day. And Ezekiel sees the Lord coming on a great cloud in his vision of God in Ezekiel 1. And Daniel, the Daniel 7 passage we just read, the Son of Man comes on the clouds. So by his statement, Jesus is tying the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God coming on the clouds to himself. He makes three clear claims to be the Son of God. And if I was Jesus' lawyer and I wanted to get him off, I would say, whatever you do, don't say verse 64. Don't say those things that are contained there because that will be enough for them to convict you. He gave them exactly what they needed for the death penalty. And so they respond. The high priest tears his robes, which was an action of great remorse and sorrow because he believes God's name has just been profaned and he concludes, the high priest, that he has uttered blasphemy, profaning God's name, claiming to be God when you obviously aren't. And Jesus has just done that in the high priest's judgment, so he makes his judgment, then he calls for the council's judgment, and they respond by saying he deserves death. And then they start doing something to Jesus that would shock us today. The members of the council, the highest religious council over all the Jewish nation, start abusing Jesus. They spit in his face, the ultimate action perhaps of disrespect. They slap him, they hit him. In another gospel, we're told at this point, Jesus is blindfolded. They start punching him and they mock him by saying, who hit you, you Christ? Now, can you imagine in our day if there's a trial and the jury renders a guilty verdict and then the judge gets the verdict and then the judge and the jury go and attack the defendant? And they start slapping the defendant and hitting the defendant and spitting on the defendant. We would think that's another crime. But here, this council probably thinks we're defending God's name. We're not going to affirm a blasphemer. So by slapping and spitting and hitting him, they, they showed their disapproval of his claims. <laughs> Yet ironically, they condemn someone who's told them the truth. So Jesus' answer gives them more than they need to condemn him. Why would he do that? Why didn't he obscure it? Why didn't he refuse to answer? Because he had God's much greater purposes in mind. Jesus' answer to the high priest's question brought Jesus' death and offers us life. Jesus incriminated himself by telling the truth to a hostile court. 
He was completely innocent. He never sinned. He never did or said anything sinful before God, though some of it offended those in power. And such focus and determination saw this much bigger picture. Jesus put aside his own self-interest for you and me. And the council would take this to the Romans and say, look, this guy is a real threat. Not just to us, but to you. And eventually they convince the Roman officials that Jesus is worthy of death and they sentence him to crucifixion. But this answer, though it brought Jesus' death, brought us life. How? Well, those who personally put their trust in Christ experience the benefit of him personally paying the price for our sin. So that we could have life through redemption. Romans 3, 23 to 25, for example. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but all who believe are justified. By his grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. So, because of Christ's death, we can have life. Because of Christ's death, we gain peace with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' death, God declares us not guilty forever. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ's death, we're raised from spiritual death to life. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, which we looked at last week. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Because of Christ's death, we can receive the Holy Spirit who gives us life and empowers us to live the Spirit-filled life. And when we die, we will immediately continue to live in Jesus' presence. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And when Jesus returns and literally does come on the clouds, we will join him in the new heaven and new earth and our resurrection bodies to live forever. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Yet in that moment when facing a life or death question, Jesus chose death to offer us life. And the question, or questions I have for you as we close today, are number one, have you actually received Jesus' offer of life? He gave his life so that you might have life, but have you accepted his offer? It doesn't just happen. If you receive an invitation in the mail to go to a wedding and you don't respond, you're not going to the wedding. You've just received the invitation. You haven't accepted it. In the same way, we need to accept the offer. 
of life that God provides. That offer to forgive, to bring us into his family, to declare us not guilty forever, to have peace with God, to have the Holy Spirit. And when we accept that offer by turning away from our old life and putting the trust of our life onto Christ, we are saved. God saves us through our faith. So first, have you actually accepted the offer of life from Christ? And then question number two, how does your life show appreciation of this gift? And if someone were to look at your life from the past week, they could watch the recording of your life from this past week, would they say, there's a person that's living in appreciation of the great gift that Christ purchased for them by saying yes to death so that we might have life. And sometimes we forget. We become complacent. We fail to remember this huge cost that Christ paid for us. So one way, a simple way, I think, to cultivate appreciation for this gift from God is through gratitude and starting something like a gratitude journal, a simple thing to do. And say, an hour before your bedtime, say you put a notification on your phone, a reminder, and then the reminder goes off an hour before whatever time you go to bed, And when that reminder goes off, you just take your phone and you have a little notepad on your phone or you have paper notepad and you just write down the things that you're grateful for that day from God. And and imagine if you did that every day, the journal that would grow. And some days that are really hard, you might not have anything to thank God for in that day, maybe, But you can go back to passages like this and say, well, thank you, Jesus, that you said yes to death so that I could have life. And the more that we live in gratitude, the more our lives begin to reflect that. And the more joy we are filled with and the more appreciation for the great gift that Christ has purchased for us. And that will radiate out from our lives to those around us. Because Jesus' answer to the high priest's question brought him death and us life. So now as we pray, I want to invite you to spend a few moments expressing your thanks to the Lord for his courage in that moment. And then I will pray. So let's come before God and will you just express to God your thanks to Jesus, your thanks for his courage in that moment. And Lord Jesus, we probably can't come close to imagining or knowing what that moment was like for you, a secret trial where everyone is against you. You're outnumbered maybe 30, 40, 50 to 1. And you know that if you tell the truth, you're going to die.
We don't know how we would respond would we be in such a situation, but we do know how you did. And because of that, we have life today if we have already received and accepted your offer to us. So today, Lord, first of all, if there's anyone watching online or here in person that has not actually accepted your offer of life because of your death, I pray that you would empower them to receive, to accept your gift now. Maybe even by praying something simple like, Lord Jesus, I see the great sacrifice you made for me. I haven't seen it before. I thought it was all about me being good enough. But it was about your decision to choose death so I could have life. Empower them, Lord, to say yes and accept that offer. And for those of us who already have life because of the words that you spoke in this moment, empower us to live grateful lives, Lord. That no matter what else is going on in the midst of all that we're facing and there's hard things going on for many people in this room, we know that you've been to the depths, Lord. You went to the depths for us and you're with us in the depths now. And you died so that we could have life and not be alone today. Empower our gratitude, help us to grow to live lives that radiate your love and your hope because of you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Yes, Lord, that is our prayer. And uh, there is no one like you. Forgive us for forgetting that and living as if that's not the case for so much of our lives or so much of our weeks and instead help us to live from you and then with love to others around us. So we praise you for that, Lord, and for who you are. In your name we pray, amen.